Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. People have been caught with their proverbial pants down, and it's not a good look. Four. It's all very well calling for perspective now, because where was the perspective when they were imposing entirely ludicrous rules? Three. I mean, I'm all for wine o'clock, but apparently in Downing Street, it starts at 4pm. It's a disgrace. It's far too late. I guess the one really positive thing we can say is that that's the end of the wait until Sue Gray reports excuse. <laughs> And welcome once again to Planet Normal, the Telegraph podcast with Alison Pearson. Hello. And me, Liam Halligan. Well, the Partygate reports out co-pilot. And what are the odds now on Boris Johnson's successor? The favourite? No, it's not Liz Truss or Jeremy Hunt. They're 7-1 to one at Labbrooks. Nor Planet Normal's not-so-secret political crush, Penny Morden. <laughs> She's at 12-1, to one, the same as battle-hardened Defence Secretary Ben Wallace, with now not-so-dishy-rishy trailing at 14-1. to one. No, the most likely next Prime Minister when Boris Johnson goes is Keir Starmer at 9-2, to two, with Labour now odds-on, if not to win a majority at the next election, then to win enough seats to cobble together some kind of administration, in cahoots with the Scottish Nationalists, perhaps, and the Liberal Democrats. I have the distinct feeling many of us are sick of hearing about Partygate co-pilot, seeing the whole thing as a media plot to invoke rules that were ridiculous anyway to oust the Prime Minister. And yet, there are many others, of course, including Planet Normal Citizens, who follow the rules assiduously and are absolutely furious at our Prime Minister, and they'll never vote for the Tories again, as long as he remains in number 10. There's so much going on, Alison. War in Ukraine, the cost of living crisis, ever-lengthening NHS waiting lists, and yet, and yet. So what do you make of it, co-pilot? Will Boris Johnson be bounced out of number 10? I was thinking, co-pilot, that this is so strange, isn't it? Because it's a great national tragedy that is now playing out as farce. I guess the one really positive thing we can say is that that's the end of the wait until Sue Gray reports excuse, <laughs> which is the political, the number 10's dog is still eating my homework, isn't it, really? She's now making the transition to Trivial Pursuit question. <laughs> She is now making. <laughs> and we'll go in 10 years' time. I know, I know, it's Sue Gray <laughs> with an A. Yes, with an A. So hot off the presses, as we're recording, The Telegraph's been running a poll on the website and with just about 9,000 votes registered, over 56% of Telegraph readers think Boris should go now. Only 14% say stay and hand over before the next general election, with 34% saying apologise and carry on. So that's from the heart of the Tory beast. And in addition to that, the latest YouGov poll this week found that 74% of people don't trust the Prime Minister. 
And I guess you have to say, well, you know, do people who don't trust the Prime Minister, are they going to vote for him at the general election? That's something we can talk about. Coming to this report, Boris told the Commons he was humbled. Personally, I don't think humility is in the PM's emotional repertoire. He still (laughs) stood there trying to defend the leaving dues by saying people were working hard and it was important for morale. But, Liam, people, as we know, were working hard in lots of places. A Planet Normal listener wrote to me and said her daughter in a London hospital, a nurse, was seconded to ICUs and walked home at the end of an exhausting shift and was getting very lonely and depressed because she was going back to her nurse's room. And this listener said, my daughter would have given anything to have a glass of wine with a colleague to wind down. But, of course, gatherings of any kind were totally forbidden. They were against the law. So I felt today, I don't know what you felt watching the Commons. Keir Starmer normally doesn't do it for me. I felt some of the points about integrity in government did hit home. But we come back to this thing we've discussed endlessly, Copilot, don't we, that while there are lots of people are thinking who cares about this stuff with the price of gas, and then we have a strong tranche of people who are really furious that this kind of flagrant karaoke and vomiting were going on when we weren't allowed to, you know, I didn't see my mum for two years. And I think some the thing that jumps out at me from the Sue Gray report is some of these incriminating messages, because I guess the question really is, were they aware that what they were doing was illegal? Now you've got this very senior civil servant, Boris's former principal private secretary, Martin Reynolds, reportedly now lined up to be our ambassador in Saudi Arabia, because that's what you do to people who've broken the rules. You reward them with the prime ambassadorship. But this civil servant was at the centre of not one, but two parties, a bring your own bottle garden party, you'll remember, which Martin Reynolds helped organise. And then there was another one in the 18th of June, 2020, which was a leaving due for a colleague. And Reynolds was, first of all, with that first party, Reynolds texted a colleague to gloat, we seem to have got away with having a drinks party. And then there was an exchange with Lee Kane, the former press guy, where Martin Reynolds was saying, are you saying we're not allowed to have a leaving party for this official? And Lee Kane replied, I think it's your decision, my friend, not mine. But it obviously comes with the rather substantial comms risk. Media shorthand for sort of communications, public relations risk, yeah. Absolutely. And then there's this extraordinary thing where wine bottles, there was a press conference going on, presumably one of our lovely Doom Porn afternoon media press briefings. And they were basically saying inside number 10, oh, better hide the wine bottles because they were obviously worried that assembled media would spot that there was sort of revelry going on. And there's one message which Sue Gray found to Martin Reynolds, which shows an unnamed special advisor expressing these concerns. And the unnamed special advisor says, the press conference will probably be finishing around that time, i.e. when the media's in the building. So it would be helpful if people can be mindful of that as speakers and cameras are leaving, not to be walking around waving bottles of wine. And Martin Reynolds replied, we'll do my best. What would you extrapolate from that, oh, great co-pilot? I'd extrapolate that people have been caught with their proverbial pants down Mm. and it's not a good look. And I'd extrapolate from that that a lot of people 
who are already understandably angry, including many Planet Normal listeners, will get even more angry looking at the beast up close, if you like. But I'd also extrapolate, if you look at the the, the coverage of the Sue Great report so far, there's no big new revelation that I think politically endangers the Prime Minister. You mentioned Martin Reynolds. He's already resigned, of course. He resigned yeah. in February, though I completely concur with you, Alison, that these details are rather galling. I must say, I think, having read the report myself, as you go through it, there are quite a lot of instances where Sue Gray reports the Prime Minister stayed for sort of, you know, 12 minutes or 10 minutes and then went back to a meeting or so on. I don't think anyone can accuse Boris Johnson of doing the conga around Downing Street in the middle of the pandemic, though that doesn't detract, of course, from the fact that rules were broken and that will really, really annoy people. I guess the slight qualification I would make is that he's not going to resign. I think it's pretty clear he's not going to resign. The Metropolitan Police have closed the investigation now. They're not going to reopen it, though the Durham Constabulary is, of course, investigating Keir Starmer. So we'll see where that leads. But when I hear, and I have to say this, and um, I do so at risk of annoying some people, when I hear that 12 police officers spent four months on this, right, and you get your car nicked and you ring the police and they literally laugh at you or get burgled in London. Yeah. Right? And try and get a police officer to come over when your family feels threatened and endangered. That's not going to happen, or very rarely does it happen. So I do think we have to get some sense of proportion here. And I do think the political media class is in danger of looking astonishingly out of touch. We've just heard the day before we we're recording this that the off gem energy price cap is going to go up another £800 in the next few months, having just gone up by about £900. <laughs> that's on top of people's existing energy bills. That's true, Liam, but that's all very well calling for perspective now because where was the perspective when they were imposing entirely ludicrous rules? Which we agreed were completely ludicrous we in most did, cases. We did, but they didn't. They didn't I agree. And they imposed I agree. them. And Fraser Nelson, actually, the editor of The Spectator, wrote a rather good piece in defence of the Partygate investigation while taking into account the fact that they've basically blown about half a million quid on not finding very much out. But nevertheless, these people need to be told what you did was wrong and disproportionate and you must never do it to us again. I mean, I was looking at that time period when these parties were going on and I remember queuing up outside the supermarket in terrible weather to get some Christmas food. And it was this ridiculous, you know, two metres between everyone. People were barking at you. There was only like you got to the front and the guy on the door may or may not let you into this almost empty supermarket. It was mad. It was absolutely mad. And it's for me, this thing has never been about what did Boris Johnson do? How many minutes, you know, how many canapes did he gobble up? I don't care. What I really care about is the week after... That picture of him was taken toasting farewell to one of his colleagues. He was on the telly telling the British people, we've got to make this fast, you know, no British Prime Minister has ever demanded so much from so many and we've got to make this huge national effort to protect the public. And you think he was absolutely talking through his arse, wasn't he? The next stage now is, yes, you might say he'll have to be dragged kicking and screaming out of number 10, but I don't think he's out of the woods. 
because there is going to be now a report from the Commons Committee of Privileges into whether the Prime Minister's denials at the dispatch box amounted to contempt of Parliament. And he paved the way for his defence today. You'll notice that as far as he knew, it was within the guidelines. No one's found me guilty of X or Y. But I think that's potentially a very sticky moment. He stood there and he said, no, there was not a party on this particular day in November. Anyone looking at the photographs, I mean, you know, things traditionally associated, accoutrements, co-pilot, traditionally associated (laughs) with revelry are present. Marks and Spencer's sandwiches, my God. And lots of bottles of wine. Bottles of wine. Can I just say, I mean, I'm all for wine o'clock, but apparently in Downing Street, it starts at 4pm. I mean, who has wine (laughs) o'clock? Maybe I'm out of It's a disgrace. It's far too late. (laughs) (laughs) Look, spooling back. I found the rules absolutely insane. I watched my three teenage kids climb the walls and have their university experiences, their school experiences, which they had worked hugely hard Mm. to be entitled to, destroyed. And my kids are very, very lucky and privileged kids. They won't mind me saying. It's outrageous that these rules were imposed on us in the way that they were. And I thought Fraser's piece was very perceptive, not least because... One of his major points, Alison, was that this investigation is justified if it then means we never impose these mad rules again. Yeah. I thought that was the real takeaway from his piece. And the Prime Minister will never be rid of this. This is his hierarch. Whatever he does in the future, good or bad, this will be part of his political epitaph. The question is, do we want to spend another six months, during which time this country is going to go through a pretty difficult period, to say the very least economically, with a political and media class going on and on and on about this. And while I completely understand why journalists would want to do that, I worry about what ordinary people are going to think of journalists. That's my concern. No, I hate as much as you do. I mean, Laura Koonsberg's moved on now, but I think Chris Mason, by the way, is a very good replacement as BBC political editor, very fair, good guy. Beth Rigby on Sky and Robert Peston. You know, they cannot get enough of it, can they? They just want to bring him down. The Boris hatred is absolutely rabid. And I dislike that. But on the other hand, I also dislike the game playing inside number 10 because they're now talking about copying Tony Blair's masochism strategy, which he pursued on after the Iraq war, coming out, meeting all his critics, saying sorry, not hiding away. So surprise, surprise, we have a cost of living package, whatever it's going to be, breakneck speed. They rush out this 10 billion package to help with the cost of living crisis, which was scheduled to change the narrative away from Partygate and once again save the scalp of the Prime Minister. I come back to my question to you, Liam. What is this government for? Are we literally got a government that exists to save the backside of Boris Johnson? Or do we have a government that actually cares about men, women and children? Let me say something that I think I've said before on Planet Normal. Sometimes when you observe politics up close, however cynical you are, it's never enough. (laughs) It isn't. It isn't. And I don't think this cost of living package was ever scheduled for June, whatever it was. It was always scheduled for the day after Sue Gray came out, whenever it was. And this is my observation, and a lot of people aren't going to like it, 
but I think it's probably the case. It's been absolutely clear for a long time that ordinary British households are suffering. And as you and I have often said, Alison, it's not just at the lower end of the income spectrum. It's people who were previously comfortable. It's the just about managing classes. It's households with two parents working around the clock trying to pay for the basics. Yet, since the off-gem energy price cap was announced, the higher one, in February, we've had almost nothing for ordinary people. We've had a spring statement which followed... Putin's invasion of Ukraine on the 24th of February that did nothing extra for people in terms of their energy bills. And my fear is, and my suspicion is, that the government has deliberately delayed announcing cost of living measures to help people while millions of people are laying in bed worrying about how they're going to pay their bills. They've deliberately delayed the announcement of the new package and the care itself to meet the most serious cost of living crisis since ration book Britain in order for that cost of living package to act as a device for moving the country on from the Sue Gray report. And I say that as somebody who wants the country to move on from the Sue Gray report, but I can't believe the extent of the manipulation and the news management going on here. It's too clever, clever by half. And I think a lot of ordinary British voters are going to see through it. I agree. And as you mentioned, we saw this off-gem warning. Actually, by the way, Liam, wasn't it interesting to hear Boris complaining around the cabinet table that there weren't enough ministers who could remember the 70s and the dreadful runaway inflation then? And I think that that's something very interesting as well. A lot of the people governing us have no experience of this terrible previous period in our history. But talking about this price cap going up to potentially in the region of 2,800. That's the average fuel bill in a year. Sorry, the average house utility bill in a year. For a lot of people, it'll be a lot more than 2,800. This is where I think they reveal how out of touch they are, because they'll talk about whatever Rishi's going to do today. Obviously, he'll have to help out people on benefits. And I know you've talked about, you know, giving the £20 back, which they took away after the pandemic. But my concern is that there are enormous numbers of average families who won't be getting very much at all. I've called repeatedly for them to scrap the green renewables tax, which is up to about 25% of bills. You told me, Liam, the other day that in Germany, they are from July, they'll be scrapping. This is Germany, green Germany, beardy, nudist, climate change. Petra Kelly, all that. They are (laughs) taking the green levy tax off their bills and that will save every German household about 300 euros. We're out greening the the European country with the highest sandal wearing coefficient. We are, but we can't do the kind of, you know, knit your own cervix virtue (laughs) signalling when people are going to be absolutely frightened of their bills. So what we're talking about is a 121% increase in 12 months and they're potentially 12 million households in fuel poverty, Liam, and that's 40% of all households. This is not just going to be the less wealthy. This is going to be a huge thing for everyone. I don't think the government's got the guts to tell people how badly off we'll be heading rapidly towards a general election and they're going to be dragging this like a ball and chain. Is the definition of fuel poverty that if it's 10% of your household income? If you're spending 10% of your disposable income on your fuel bills, your household utilities, not 
for cars and vans and so on, then you are officially in fuel poverty. And the numbers are very, very scary. Can I ask you, Liam, what would you, with your great economist brain, what would you like to see Rishi do today? Okay, what I'd like to see him do today is two things. You've mentioned one of them, Alison. I'd like to see him restore that £20 uplift to universal credit. That will help some people on low and not so low incomes. Lots of people already in work. It's not just people in work get universal credit. A lot of it is an in-work benefit as well. And I'd also like to see him restore the emergency rate of VAT on the hospitality industry, taking it back from 20% where it currently is, the regular rate, back to 12.5% at least. And I think that will give a real boost to a lot of small businesses in high streets, a lot of family-run businesses. They're two very direct things that he can do. The trouble with this package of measures he announced back in February, I'm afraid typical Rishi Sunak, it was too clever, clever. The economics has been too clever, clever, and the politics has been too clever, clever. It was all about, oh, I'll give you a council tax rebate. Those rebates aren't coming through for a lot of people. They were meant to be in April. Now it's from April. So a lot of households haven't got those council tax rebates yet. It was all about the government gives you a reduction in your energy bill, but then you've got to pay back the energy company over the next three years. Again, too clever, clever. We need very, very direct headline things that not only help people in terms of putting more money in their pocket immediately, but also try and give the economy and society a confidence booster, a shot in the arm. Also, I would like to see the government say, you know, that increase in corporation tax from 19 to 25 percent, right? If your turnover is below a certain amount, you're a small, medium sized enterprise. We're keeping it at 19. That's the kind of thing that will make people think, you know what? We can get through this recession. I'm going to keep my business open. I'm going to not lay off my staff. Those small and medium sized enterprises, which are the spine, the bedrock of this economy, of our society, of living standards, they need help now. And we can't have things happening in July and in October. We need something to happen now. Now the Sue Gray report is out. Hopefully the government's spin machine will think now is the time. Do you think that they will do this windfall tax? on? I think they will. I think Mm. the politics of it are irresistible, as we've discussed. It's not particularly to my taste, but I think in the end, to take money off big oil and gas companies that are making out like bandits through no merit of their own just because global energy prices are high. I am concerned the smoke signals seem to be that also energy companies like the utility companies will be pulled into that windfall tax. I don't agree with that at all. A lot of the energy companies have made big mistakes and a lot of them have gone bust and we're paying for that. But those of them who are surviving, they're not making huge amounts of money because they make money on the difference between the price at which they buy energy and the price at which they sell energy. Yes, they're mismanaged, but they are not swimming in profits whatsoever. And you could drive some more of those companies out of business. And in the end, the taxpayer and bill payers generally will have to pick up the bill for those failures. So I would keep the windfall tax if it must happen on the big oil and gas companies, make sure it's a one off. But to extend it to the actual energy companies, the utility companies, that seems to me like politically misguided. We've already started to see people on the news every night with different difficult stories. And we're in the summer now. I mean, you know, come October, November, it's going to get very, very distressing indeed. Plus the fact the government's facing 
at least two by-elections through various grubby misdeeds. I think they can expect to get hammered in Tiverton and there's one up north, isn't there? Wakefield. Wakefield, yes. Is there an unusual percentage of deviants and creeps (laughs) who go into politics? Seems to be one a week at the moment, Halligan. It does seem to me that there's been, yeah, a rather unfortunate sequence of events with (laughs) MPs getting caught doing various things, some of them really quite serious. No, I'm not making light of that. Obviously, in Wakefield, the sitting MP was ousted under pretty unsavoury circumstances. You do wonder how much more of this Boris Johnson can take and wants to take. You could see, if you go back to Clinton, a comparison I've, I've often made, you know, a very talented natural communicator, natural risk taker, ladies man, showman, but with, you know, a streak of some kind of political acumen. Clinton got away with Lewinsky. Remember, I did not have sexual relations with that woman and it all (laughs) came down to what your definition of if is or whatever it was. We weren't allowed to do that in South Wales, Halligan, (laughs) I tell you. That certainly would have qualified as sexual relations. Taking your national health specs off, <laughs> qualified as sexual relations with you and Keith the choir boy. But anyway. Never mind about gender identity. We weren't allowed to see our own privates when winter we were about 21. We had to hide behind a towel. <laughs> but, you know, to go back to Clinton, when people talk about the Clinton presidency, you know, it seemed largely as a positive thing, even though at the time it was just scandal after scandal after scandal after scandal. Mm. So it may be that even at this ridiculous point where he's getting hammered left, right and centre, future historians may look back on the Boris Johnson time in office with some degree of favour. We cannot know, but it must be absolutely pulverising for the guy, the punishment that he's taking. And guess what? Sue Gray didn't even investigate Carrie Johnson's ABBA party. Hello, I'm Christopher Hope, but my pals call me Chopper, and you can too. Just dropping into my second favourite podcast to tell you about another Telegraph show, mine. As the Telegraph's chief political correspondent, I spend my days holding politicians to account and asking them about the things that affect you. I speak to the top politicians from across the political spectrum, commentators with their finger on the pulse, and of course, my talented colleagues at The Telegraph. So if that sounds like your cup of tea, please search Chopper's Politics wherever you're listening to this. Cheerio! Well, co-pilot, we've got a rather special guest in the rocket this week. Calvin Robinson, as you'll know, has been making headlines everywhere. A respected broadcaster on education, faith and the family, Calvin was due to be ordained as a deacon in the Church of England. But then in February, Calvin was told that his ordination was likely to be problematic. Unfortunately, he got into hot water after publicly criticising Black Lives Matter and the teaching of critical race theory. The Bishop of London, Sarah Mullally, reproved him. Calvin, as a white woman, I can tell you that the church is institutionally racist. So I began by asking Calvin Robinson what he made of the bishop's criticism. 
it makes it sound like she's saying it's not a place for me. But I don't think that's what she meant. And I think she's confused in that. I've heard it from a lot of white, upper middle class, what I would call the metropolitan liberal elite, in that they always seem to be self-flagellating. And that's not just themselves personally, that's the state, the nation. They want to bring us all down in some kind of white guilt, some kind of shame for our shared heritage and past. And I don't see the logic behind it, but I can at least see that it's well-intentioned. It's just misguided. But if anyone's going to be the arbiter of whether somewhere's racist, to be fair, would it not be someone like you? That's the irony of it, because they'll say, you know, we need to take on board the lived experiences of ethnic minority people. And then I'll be like, hi, I'm an ethnic minority person. I've got a lived experience I'd like to share. And then, no, 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 not that type of experience. You know, it's almost as if you're the wrong kind of black person. We need the black people that think like we do, or the ones that reaffirm our narrow-minded perspective on the world. The moment you step out of line, you know, when I stand up and say, I'm not oppressed, I'm not a victim, we have equal opportunities under the law in this country, I feel like I can get anywhere if I work hard enough. The moment I say that, it's not that I'm no longer a victim in their eyes, it's that I'm no longer black in their eyes. I lose, you know, I lose my skin colour, I lose my culture, I lose all of it because I'm the wrong politics. And it's the same with Priti Patel, it's the same with any high profile person on the right or right of centre that is an ethnic minority that stands up for good old-fashioned British values and or common sense or culturally conservative views. Are you outraged by that? seems to me there's an element of pat the nice black kid on the head and tell him to run along. (laughs) It's exactly that. The people who are shouting the loudest about racism tend to be the most racist people. They want to have that demographic of black people that they can help, that can make them feel good about their personal white guilt. They want to pat us on the back and say, yes, you're a good black person. You are because you're reaffirming my values and making me feel good about myself. And that's not what I'm here for. I'm sorry. If the Church of England bishops, who are almost all white, incidentally, you know, men like Justin Welby, Stephen Cottrell, if they really believe that the Church of England is institutionally racist, shouldn't they cancel themselves logically? Well, that's the crux of the matter, isn't it? If this institution is racist and these people have been in office for, what, 11 years, 18 years, either they are the racists and it's their fault or they're incompetent and they cannot fix the problem, therefore they should step down. And by their own logic, if it's an entirely white hierarchy, surely they should make way for someone of colour. But it's not the case. I don't think the institution is racist. But if it was, by sacking me, all they're doing is backing up their own stance. Many Planet Normal listeners and Telegraph readers have weighed in in support of you. One wrote, the Church of England is no longer a religious institution. Sadly, it is an ideological one. What's your reaction to that, Calvin? I despair because I've been battling this for a long time, not just the way they've treated me, but the way that the church has been going. I've struggled with it day in, day out, because we hear from the bishops all the time when they don't like a conservative government policy or they come out against the Rwanda plan, which is there to help save lives and stop illegal people smuggling and all kinds of evils. And they say, no, it's an ungodly policy. Well, it's not ungodly. You're just being very political. It's all politics. It's all very woke issues, you know, whether it comes to views on sexuality or gender or marriage, all of these things, they take on board 
what I would call liberal progressive views, but they're never affirming the faith. They're embarrassed and ashamed of the faith. They will never stand up and say, God made them man and woman and God made them in his own image. And that is a good thing. And we should teach people to love the bodies they are in because they were designed that way. They will never stand up and say marriage is between one man and one woman in union, in love, under the eyes of God. That is a good thing. And again, that's not against any type of lifestyle that's for something. The church should be for Christianity. And it's very simple to know what we should stand for because it's all in a big book we've been given. It's ironic to me, I think, that, you know, when I was a child, the Church of England was accused of being the Conservative Party at prayer. Now the bishops seem to be driving traditionists like the marvellous Michael Nazir Ali and you, Calvin, out of the church when it's supposedly for everyone everywhere. So it's become being a heretic now it's not a question of your faith, it's a question of your politics. Is that right? Yeah. At the same time, I do think they see me as a heretic because they have a new religion. Wokeness is a religion. You know, they've taken all the tenets of wokedom and replaced their old commandments and the old instructions of the Bible, unfortunately. They're following the secular state. They're trying to chase up to progressive norms. And of course, an institution as old and ancient as the church cannot ever catch up with society, but it's not meant to. So they'll never achieve what they're trying to do. They'll never get the people they're aspiring to get on board. And all they'll do is drive away the faithful. You talked about dragging the Church of England into apostasy, preferring the new religion of wokeness. How would you define apostasy? Is it turning their back on fundamental tenets and the scriptures? Well, it is disregarding the old faith and replacing it with a new one. Jesus Christ said to us, he is the truth, the way and the life. And by truth, I mean literally the truth, as in we're supposed to live a life in him, follow his example. And all of that is written in the gospels. Now, if we disregard that and say, well, what Jesus actually meant was love everyone and be nice and kind to everyone and take everyone's values on board and be welcoming in and inclusive and water down our own values so that we don't offend people. That's not what he said. He wasn't always that polite in it either. And he would say, no, this is the truth. There is only one truth. And we've reached a point now where the church will say, oh, we've got to listen to everyone's truths. We've got to listen to, you know, and people will say, this is my truth. No, you don't own your own truth. You don't get that liberty, at least not in our faith. When we let anecdotes replace evidence, when we let subjective truth replace the objective truth, we have no common ground. We can't progress as a society because we don't know what is true and what's not. Yeah. I'd like to pin you down, Calvin, on the details of how this rejection came about. So the church paid for you to do a two-year course as an ordinand training for the priesthood at St. Stephen's House, Oxford University in October 2020. So they must have thought you were good enough to be a candidate. You were due to be ordained as a deacon working part-time as assistant curate at St. Albans Church, Hoban, Central London. And then suddenly in February this year, you were told that your ordination was likely to be problematic. You then, I believe, you applied under the Data Protection Act to see the information the church had on you. Is that correct? And if so, what did you discover? Yes, all of that is correct. And just to note on the uh, financial side of things, you said the church sponsored me and you're, and you're right, but it's parishioners' money. You know, it costs over 20 grand to send me to Oxford for, for a couple of years. And that's not out of the bank's money. That is out of normal elderly parishioners in London that put their coffers uh, into the pot at the end of a service. It was a waste of money if the church sent me to training with no intention of ever seeing me succeed. And you're also right in that I sensed a calling to ordain ministry and the church affirmed that calling in sending me to training. End of February, early March was when I discovered that I wasn't going to be ordained. And even then it wasn't 
explicit. It wasn't like, we are not ordaining you because X, Y, Z. It was like, yeah, you're problematic. There'll be too much turbulence. We're not sure if now's the right time. But I put the uh, subject access request in because the bishop said that, you know, there'd been complaints about what you've said in the media. And I wanted to see what they were so that I could improve my practice because I'm not out here to offend people. And they wouldn't let me see what the complaints were. So I put my subject access request in knowing that they'd have to show me. And there were less than a handful of complaints about me. As far as I could see, one of them was from the public, this chap, but the rest of them were from gay clergymen who do not like that I am orthodox on my stance on sexuality and ethics and marriage. And the Right Reverend Rob Wickham, who's the Bishop of Edmonton, had been reporting you to church leaders. Calvin, you went on Good Morning Britain in September 2020 to say that you were against Black Lives Matter because you thought the group was increasing racial tensions and you believe that everyone in this country does have an equal opportunity to succeed. And that same day, Bishop Rob Wickham wrote to the Bishop of London, Sarah Mullally again, to bring it to your attention. Calvin Robinson is not only a political commentator, quote, but he's an ordinand and former teacher in the area who has just started at St. Stephen's House. Calvin's comments concern me about denying institutional racism in this country. And then in December last year, Bishop Wickham wrote again to the Right Reverend Emma Innocent, Bishop to the Archbishop of Canterbury, and also to the Bishop of London. He sent them some of your tweets saying, these are clear examples as to why his ordination should be looked at very closely. So these were heretical tweets. Was that the issue? (laughs) Absolutely. This is yet another upper middle class white chap that does not like my views on race. I don't know where to start on this because it seems he'd sustained a campaign against me since before I even began training. I knew this bishop. I actually taught his son at school. You were teaching in Hendon, weren't you? I was, yes. And, you know, he saw smiles to my face. And behind my back, he was emailing the Bishop of London, the Archbishop of Canterbury, saying he has the wrong politics for us. But it's always down to the politics. It's never, look, Calvin doesn't understand the faith or Calvin's wrong on scriptural verses or, you know, it's not my theology. It's my politics. And that's not right in a broad church. I just want to go back a bit. I think Planet Normal listeners will be very interested as to where you came from. You were born in Mansfield. Now I'm going to take you up on this, Calvin Robinson. I know Mansfield and you know Middook. <laughs> gone up in the world, lad, haven't you? You've gone up. Your mum was Nottinghamshire born and bred. Dad's parents came over from Jamaica, part of the Windrush generation. Now I do know Mansfield quite well. It's a very traditional mining community. Presumably your grandparents were among the first black people to actually arrive. And did they experience racism? What was it like for your family being in that very traditional working class area? Yes, it was very mixed. So my grandparents were the first black family in town. Uh, They faced a lot of racism, really bad racism. At the same time, they became a part of the community. And, you know, my dad, likewise, he faced quite a bit of racism. And so did I, but not as much as him. And I think every generation, it gets better and better. And it's important that we highlight the progress. You know, I've never, ever said racism doesn't exist. Of course it does. I've experienced it firsthand quite badly at times. But what I'm saying is that We've come a long, long way, and that's a good thing. People aren't inherently racist. It's something that's taught, and it's something that we can solve. I sometimes think that immigrants, either first generation or second generation, that they have a keener appreciation of Britishness and its traditions than some of the natives. Do you think that's fair comment? A hundred percent. But again, it comes down to teachers are honestly the hardest working people I've ever met. But 
there's a massive echo chamber there of groupthink mentality. They all think alike, they all act alike, and they think that that is appropriate. And they think that they are morally superior because they get it, whereas the rest of us don't. And that is dangerous. And that's why, you know, it's the self-flagellating, Britain is a bad place with a bad history kind of mentality. It's not helpful. So as I entered teaching, leaving industry behind where everyone got along, you know, I could be sat next to a conservative on one side and a Lib Dem on the other facing a Labour supporter. And that was normal. But then I got into teaching where that was not normal. And everyone expected you to vote Labour. I remember during one general election, they said, so who are you voting for in the staff room? And I did not realise that question was rhetorical. And I obviously said conservatives and they were stunned and disgusted, actually. And from that point on, every time the Conservative government came out with a policy that they disagreed with, it came to me personally as if I'd implemented it, as if I agree with every single thing the Conservative government does and says, which is obviously not the case. So I started writing a blog of all of the stuff that I was seeing, because the teachers weren't just keeping these views to themselves. They were what I saw as indoctrinating the young people around them, because they thought that their moral superiority should be passed on to the kids, that they're not just there to teach mathematics, they're also there to pass on their values, which is incorrect. And I, I started writing about what I was seeing. And then the Camden New Journal picked it up. They phoned me. They said, you know, do you still agree with the, these uh, incendiary things you, you've said? I said, yeah, absolutely I agree with them because they're still going on. So they published a piece. And then off the back of that, all the broadsheets and tabloids picked it up. You know, so I didn't aim to become a commentator. And it's not a career goal or an ambition of mine. I just speak up for the causes that I care about. When GB News started up, they adopted you. Listeners may have seen you as a terrific panelists. Now, GB News is deliberately an antidote to mainstream media, which is broadly left liberal and doesn't have much room for other views. Do you think the Church of England was unhappy about the fact that you were appearing on a supposedly right-wing channel? (laughs) Yes, they definitely were. But it's one of those things, they're never explicit. The bishops are very political, actually. And, you know, I'm straight talking. I don't like to talk around a topic. I, I say what I mean, and I mean what I say. But the left, especially the liberal left, tend to scrutinise language much more than I find we do on the right. And they'll get hung up on semantics. But they'll never say, look, Calvin, we don't like what you're saying. We don't like that you're right wing. What they'll say is, Calvin, it's not what you say. It's how you say it. And it's so patronising. We do seem to, at the moment, whether it's from the NHS, which Liam and I have been looking at, or the church, there are definite points of comparison with a large centralised bureaucracy. Do you, Calvin, do you see this tension between a sort of, you know, particular righteous thinking bureaucracy and normal people who are saying, hang on, that's not what we want? Absolutely. And I think on the whole, people in this country are small C conservative. And I don't think they'd identify as that, but I think you know, they believe in the family, they believe in British values. You know, most people would say that having a queen is a good thing and, and being British is a good thing. Most people, I think. However, the hierarchy of the Church of England, the bishops, are the same as the, the hierarchy as in the civil service or the NHS, as you rightly mentioned, in that they are the opposite of that. They don't believe anymore in family values. They're ashamed to be British and they're embarrassed to be Christian. It strikes me that the church hierarchy, the archbishop and the bishops, what they seem to want is people to go and have services in a carpet warehouse. Even non-believers, the parish churches are some of the glories of our country, aren't they? Yet they are now seen to be you know, allowed to wither and die if it means getting a few sort of trendy younger people to turn up. I mean, are they are they chasing a sort of false god, Calvin? 
of course they are. And these bureaucrats, they're just there for the managed decline. They see the church as dying, so they're trying to manage that decline rather than aiming to improve things. And this obsession with chasing young people does not make sense. The amount of times I've heard there's nothing but old people in the pews, well, so what? It has to be there for everybody. And that's the greatest shame for me. I mean, we've talked about the disconnect between the people and the church. And obviously you've mentioned that the church used to be referred to as conservatives at prayer. And I think it still is, as in the congregation are still quite conservative. But the Lib Dems who are running it are the ones sneering down the noses at us from their pulpits, reading their Guardian, looking at our Daily Mail or our Telegraph, thinking, what are they? Mm. Have you privately heard from people within the C of E who are supporting you and disappointed you won't be joining the church? Yeah, the support has been lovely. Lots and lots of both laity and clergymen have reached out and expressed their disappointment with the church with their treatment of me, but also the way the church is heading. And I think there are a lot of people that feel lost and don't know what to do about it. Is it correct that the vicar of St Albans Church in Hoban, where you were going to be assistant curate, would he be happy to have you there, do you think? Yeah, yes, I've spoken to him. He's made it clear that he was very happy and looking forward to me going there. A few of the uh, parishioners have reached out, but there have also been a number of other priests in London who said, come and train here, we'll happily be your incumbent. And some of them have spoken to the bishops, and the bishops have, of course, said no. So this public line that the uh, Diocese of London are putting out that there just aren't enough curacies in London for me is a complete and outright lie, which is another thing the church should not be doing. No, that's what they've said, isn't it? There's a shortage of curacies, but people want you, don't they? You've now joined something called Global Anglican Future Conference. Tell me what it is, Calvin. It's a sort of breakaway movement. Is that right? Absolutely. So it's not an institution. It's a movement. There was a declaration that was signed in 2008 that said, look, we're not going to chase these woke issues. We're not going to chase societal norms. We're not going to undermine scripture with things like homosexual marriage or rebaptizing people that have changed gender, because of course that's not possible. Just sticking to the faith and doing it in love and doing it in compassion, but not being swayed and not trying to alter the faith, not entering apostasy. I'm joining that movement. I'm going to get ordained in one of the branches of that movement over here very soon, hoping to attract the people that feel lost or disregarded by the Church of England and feel that the Church of England is moving away from the faith. They'll have a place, they'll have a home and they can come and worship with me. Calvin, I have to say that as an occasional churchgoer and former Sunday school teacher, as Mr Halligan would tell you, my heart grieves really. I think you're such a wonderful addition and such an amazing, intelligent and thoughtful speaker. And I know Planet Normal listeners, Telegraph readers will wish you well in what you do next and God bless. Thank you. God bless you too. A fabulous interview, Alison, with a really interesting young man who I also know personally, given that we work together. Yes, I could have talked to him for hours. Now, Liam, I have to say I would have points of disagreement with Calvin Robinson on things like the ordination of women, on gay marriage. We wouldn't see eye to eye on that, but I think he would make an absolutely fantastic vicar. It's not as if the Church of England is oversubscribed with inspirational, compassionate, eloquent people like that. And of course, this magnificent irony of this black man being lectured <laughs> by the bien Ponce on white middle classes. It's hardly credible, is it really, Liam? Listening to Calvin there, Alison, I was taken back to our recent Plant Normal guest, Joanna Williams, who wrote the book How Woke Won. I mean, it really has come to something when the Church of England also seems to have subscribed to these 
pretty ill-thought-through, ultra-sensorious attitudes. I think we need to dig down more into it on Planet Normal. This critical race theory seems to have taken hold in throughout our institutions. And I think many, many people would be absolutely horrified if they knew what was going on. Talking to Calvin, I went away and looked up a George Orwell quote. You'll remember that Orwell said, England is perhaps the only great country whose intellectuals are ashamed of their own nationality. And what an irony that it's the descendant immigrants and the descendants of immigrants to this country who become the most passionate defenders of its traditions. Now on to our listener emails. Please keep your fantastic messages coming. We absolutely love reading them and we learn so much from you. Now, in a similar vein to what we've just been discussing, Georgie says, the National Trust continues to paddle its white gilt canoe. I was recently asked to return as a volunteer at a nearby National Trust property. I'd stopped before the pandemic because management was making the experience dull and black school children had been asked to rewrite the history of various properties. Academic rigour has since practically disappeared. Nevertheless, I thought I would give them the benefit of the doubt, hoping that Restore Trust, the anti-woke campaigning group, may have given them pause for thought. Sadly not. I was told that I had to do several online courses to do with health and safety, fire regs, etc. However, I then noticed that I also had to spend 20 to 30 minutes on being made self-aware of my biases and how I could limit the effect of my biases on others. I copy below the full text. It is nothing short of indoctrination. I can confirm that, Liam. We may put it up in the show notes. It's all welcome, everyone. Raise self-awareness of our biases, some potential ways to limit their effects on others and suggest ways you can play your part. This is a nice person wanting to volunteer at the National Trust, you know, not going on some kind of soul-purging experience. And then there's Anthony, also in response to my Calvin Robinson interview. The Church of England is to Christianity what Boris Johnson is to conservatism. There's a thought. (laughs) That's a neat one. That's a neat one. This is from Faye. Dear Alison and Liam, I wrote to you in December of 2020 and told you the tragedy of my daughter Henrietta's Hattie's death in November 2020. Hattie had come home from London to work remotely because she couldn't endure the loneliness of living, working from her bedroom for another lockdown. She was walking her little dog early one morning on a country road before starting work when she was mown down and killed by a van. My point at the time, and you wrote me a very understanding and kind reply, Alison, was that the fallout from these draconian lockdown rules was not being taken into account. My daughter's death was a fallout statistic. I listen with intent to every Planet Normal episode and agree with virtually all that's discussed. I'm a big fan. However, I sense more recently there's been a feeling that it's it's important to move on from the pandemic. I agree that there are hugely important issues the government needs to address right now, but underestimating the effect of behaviour in Downing Street during the pandemic is insulting to so many of us who've suffered. On November the 13th, when farewell parties took place in number 10, we turned off our beautiful 24-year-old daughter's life support machine at Southmead Hospital, Bristol. We were apparently lucky to even be able to enter the hospital to be with her because of the rules that the Prime Minister and his government had imposed. 
Please just try and imagine our loss and excruciating suffering and then add to that the feelings of horror and disbelief when we viewed the photos of the Prime Minister and his colleagues enjoying their partying on the very same night that Hattie died. Add to this Hattie's funeral on the 1st of December 2020 when I understand Downing Street had moved into Christmas party mode. I think I need say no more. So on that note, and as you can imagine, there's absolutely no way that I could ever give my support again to the Tory party while such an utterly amoral, self-serving person is at the helm. I don't think I'm alone in my opinions. Please keep up the very brilliant work that you both do. You are the voices of reason, and I write to you from the bottom of my very broken heart. With best wishes to you both. Faye. Oh, goodness, Liam. Well, there's Faye reminding us why these things do matter. And I'm sure Downing Street is very eager to move on from this disgraceful period. But some people will never be able to move on co-pilot. And they absolutely shouldn't be forgotten. We send you our love, Faye, as well. Now, Liam, we've had a number of emails about the extraordinary NHS waiting times. There was talk this week in The Telegraph, a great story by Sarah Napton, about whether the 6.4 million hospital waiting list had been wrongly calculated. And maybe it's one in five of the population who is on a waiting list, not one in nine. So Rosalind sent us a screenshot of a letter she got from Imperial College Healthcare in London. Dear Planet Normal, says Rosalind, I thought you might be interested to see my appointment letter with the pain management team at Imperial College. The letter was sent to me in November 2021 for an appointment in February 2023. Incredible. I should say, Liam, that Rosalind has told us about an acute debilitating pain she's had for a long time and she did get scarily low during the first lockdown. So she needs help a bit sooner than next February, there are going to be lots of people like that. And I think it's worth saying, Alison, that 14-month wait, that 15-month wait is for a phone appointment. I didn't even pick that up. It's for a phone appointment. (laughs) (laughs) A phone appointment for pain management. It's always very useful. And you've got to wait 15 months for that. We've got so many of these. Valerie says, Dear co-pilots, I listen every week to your podcast and constantly wish that you were both in government at numbers 10 and 11, maybe. (laughs) Definitely in the government of different countries. (laughs) (laughs) However, says Valerie, whilst I wait to see if you are standing for election in 2024, I wonder if George can allay some of my suspicions. At the end of March, my GP requested a CT scan for me at my local hospital in Plymouth. I was delighted when, within a fortnight, I was called in for the scan on a Saturday. That was seven weeks ago, and still no results are available at my GP surgery. Could George perhaps find out what the NHS performance indicator for CT scans is? Is it waiting time for a scan or working time for results? Am I being ungenerous in thinking that the box the radiologists have to tick is completion of the CT scan and that timelines of delivering results is not measured I am, of course, up against a brick wall. Well, two brick walls, actually. The practice receptionist suggests I phone the hospital. The hospital doesn't give out results to patients and suggests that I ask the GP surgery to contact them. The GP receptionist assure me that they don't do that. Meanwhile, I just sit and worry about the cause of my pelvic pain and try not to imagine lumps growing bigger all the time. Hey-ho, these are difficult times. Keep up the good work. Valerie. Now, listen, Valerie, 
I did put your query to George, our NHS England source. Liam, did you want to very quickly say the covering note for George? (laughs) Here we go. You ready for this? (laughs) Everyone can recite this at home. Yep, here we go. George is a senior source of the NHS England with full access to the internal data. We don't disclose his or her identity. We're very confident of the authenticity of George's statistics, and that's why we report them. But by definition, we can't independently verify these numbers because George gives them to us before they're published, if they're published at all. One breath at the very end. I'm going to do it soon with no breath. <laughs> so George has brilliantly responded to Valerie, who, of course, is anxiously waiting results for her CT scan. And George says the performance standard in the NHS is the waiting time to the scan itself, which is as Valerie suspected. There is no monitoring of the time taken after that to get the results back to the patient, not unless they are specifically referred on a suspected cancer pathway, in which case the time frame for communication of results is four weeks from the date of referral. George says, my advice to anyone who comes up against these brick walls is not to be fobbed off. A phone call to PALS, that's Patient Advice and Liaison Service, can do wonders. If the GP is not prepared to chase your results, then tell the hospital staff that. There's also the local health watch teams who are meant to act as the patient's voice. A seven-week delay, such as Valerie mentions, in communication of results is unacceptable. So, Valerie, make a fuss, make a nuisance of yourself. At the moment, sadly, your life might depend on it. I just want to add here, co-pilot, that your Velma here has been doing her level best to get some readers and listeners to have some medical care. So if any of you run up against a total brick wall, just drop an email to your Auntie Alison and she'll ring up people and shout because this is going to surprise you, co-pilot, but I'm quite good at shouting. You're an ankle biter in chief. (laughs) Martin says... I sympathise with Alison having to fork out £50 a pop for bingo, your cockapoo's grooming. That is what my Airedale Terrier now costs me every six weeks, now extended to seven as times are hard. I did buy a pair of electric clippers during the countless lockdowns, but the results of doggy grooming were not ideal. (laughs) If you do choose this route... And I did suggest that I would be cutting himself's haircut with pet clippers because his haircut costs a lot as well. Stick a bowl on his head. (laughs) (laughs) If you choose this route, Martin says, the benefit will not only be fiscal, but putting hair from two or four-legged family members round garden hostas and vegetables protects them from hungry slugs and snails. That is the best cost of living. I didn't know that. That's really interesting, isn't it? At Pearson Towers in the back garden, I've started this week my vegetable patch, so I'll be keeping you up to date with my produce. Get those Pearson green (laughs) fingers moving. And that's it from Planet Normal for another week as we leave our sanctuary, sweet reason, our flying refuge of reasoned views. It's my turn to award email of the week, Alison, and there is only one contender this week, and that is, of course, Faye. A fabulous email. Faye, we are honoured that you are a fan of Planet Normal, and we look forward to you listening and being in contact with us for many, many more episodes to come. And our very best to you and your family and deep condolences at your ghastly loss. If you enjoy Planet Normal, do leave us a rating and a review if possible on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. There are some lovely ones there. It does really help others to find us so the Planet Normal family can grow. And do keep emailing us because your input is the lifeblood, the rocket fuel 
that fills our engines <laughs> as we blast off each week. So as we speed away from our beloved planet normal and the madness of planet Earth comes back into view, thanks as ever to our producers, Isabel Bouchard, Elliot Lampitt, and our editor, Zoe Hitch. Stay safe and in touch with us and with each other. Until next week, it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from him. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.